I think a lot of the bad examples of entrepreneurship in China come from really short-term thinking, such as copying people's copy, yeah. copyrights and brands. Of course, it's illegal, but aside from the illegality of it, of course, that's the easiest thing. You, you take something that is very successful that someone else has created, and you literally copy it, and you can sell it right away. So if it weren't for the legal aspect, and, and I'm not making a judgment on that. Every country has a right to, to think about its own intellectual property. That's the rawest form of entrepreneurship, which says, I see an opportunity, <clears throat> meaning I see a market demand. I'm going to I have an easy, quick way to bring in the resources I need, raw materials I need. I can produce it very quickly at low cost, and I can sell it, and I can make money. And the sooner, the better. And, and that last statement is really what is holding, has been holding back investors, so-called venture capital investors or other investors in China and Asia. They're so accustomed to that, they, that when an entrepreneur presents a plan to an investor, that's the first thing they look for. Oh, six months, you haven't made any money? Ah, forget you. <laughs> so, not, so entrepreneurs, even the, the ones who are more ambitious technically or technologically, I have a huge disincentive to try to create products have long-term focus and may not have a result for a couple of years. That will not fly. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome to Tiny Dragon. So today we have a special guest, Po Chi Wu, Professor Po Chi Wu. He is currently the venture advisor of Skydeck, which is a accelerator incubator of UC Berkeley. Thank you, Wuchi. Thank you. And why don't you give us a little bit more detail about our background? Because you have so many years of experience in the venture world and tech startup. It's a, a really long list, right? Okay. Thank you for the kind invitation, Elaine. Uh, you and I have known each other for, I don't know, a decade, probably longer at this point. The, the short version of, of my bio is that I was uh, trained as a scientist. So I have a PhD in biochemistry, molecular biology spent about two decades as a venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley, as well as in greater China. So that's mainland China, Taiwan, and a bit of Southeast Asia as well, and a little bit in Hong Kong. And then about a decade on the <clears throat> startup side, not as a founder, but just working with friends really who are starting companies. And then a decade teaching entrepreneurship at the university level. Again, starting in mainland China, Peking University, seven years at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and one year here at UC Berkeley. And then since then, I've been uh, an advisor, one of 750 advisors now at uh, Skydeck, which is completely voluntary for the last six years. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, so I let me just tie all that up in, in, a, in a tagline. I would call myself an investor in human capital. So basically, smart people, smart ideas. And awesome. uh, I'm doing that in the ecosystems in, in Asia, and again, in greater China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, as well as here in Silicon Valley. 
Also, so I guess you've met many uh, entrepreneurs, <laughs> good ones and bad ones, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in our show. We are especially interested in those with a cross-cultural background, people like yourself. You're educated. Uh, you have a educated in the West, but you also have Chinese cultural roots, and then you go back and forth between the continents, right? So what, what made you get into venture, venture capital? Yeah. <clears throat> Without going too far back into my background, after, actually even before I, I completed my PhD, I really didn't want to have a career as an academic scientist. I, I love science and I love technology, but, but I always wanted to be involved with something that was more of practical significance to society. At the time, I never thought about engineering, so I never did anything there. And when I started getting involved with early stage companies, which was an outgrowth of the work I was doing after my PhD, I discovered that this was, this was the kind of ecosystem. This is the kind of people, not any one particular category, all the different stakeholders in the startup ecosystem. I discovered this was an ecosystem that I really thrived in. It would stimulate me. It, it challenged me. The people I met were really interesting of course, very diverse, all kinds. And eventually, one of the companies I was working with had hired me as a VP of R&D. And I was in the position of managing projects for which I was trying to raise capital. And so in that context, I met some investors. And very quickly, I figured out it's better to be on that side of the table. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Projects looking for money. And so it was a pretty easy transition in terms of mindset. It was not an easy transition in terms of actually working and developing funds and so on. That's another story. Mm. So in, in terms of the investments that, that you do, is there certain verticals? I know Skydeck has a, it's like deep tech, right? It's a commercializing R and yeah. IT, communications, software, chip development as well as in the, in the biotech area at, mm. in medical devices. And this has been actually my history. So despite my PhD in a biotechnology field, uh, I did not want to be so specialized. And that, yeah, again, <laughs> another story. Mm-hmm. So I was always more of a generalist. And I think, first of all, I enjoy that. I don't think that being uh, being a generalist is not a disadvantage. Now, for a young person starting out today, you have to have some expertise. You can't just say, I'm interested in everything. People mm. just laugh at you. They laughed at me then too, but it's worse now. But at, at this point, what I bring is indeed experience, perspective. Of course, the cross-border thing really is very helpful because it's not so much that things that work in one country uh, may or may not work in another country. It's more that you have to look at all the assumptions you make about the market, about customers, about how your product is going to work in the context of the businesses in those different countries. And you don't think about those questions if you just say, I'm just this American company. I want to serve the American or North American market. I know who all these people, I don't have to question a lot of very fundamental assumptions. And that's actually a flaw. You know, you think that's efficient, but it's a flaw because it makes it very difficult for you then to bring your products to other markets. 
American companies trying to sell into Asia and Asian companies, particularly Chinese companies, trying to sell into the U.S. So what, what's the biggest difference between North American culture and going to Asia markets that, and you've trained a lot of people, what are some of the interesting stories or war stories that you can share? There's so many different aspects. One I always start with is education. We're all with the, the stereotype of the tiger mom, the Asian mom, who right. pretty much beats their children, maybe not physically, into excelling in academic subjects. There's general much greater emphasis on the skills that are required to excel in the academic environment, whether it's China, Japan, Southeast Asia, and so on. That's good. Excuse me. These are very smart people. They've accumulated a lot of knowledge. They can they can perform very well in that context. However, the fact that they are they actually excel in that often means that they are unable or it's, it's much more challenging for them to cross over to the entrepreneurial mindset, which mm-hmm. requires a totally different approach to what you know, what you don't know, how you meet challenges. Uh, what, what do you do when, and this is literally the dilemma for all entrepreneurs, every day you have to make decisions on incomplete information. You never know enough, right? right. In school, it's different. In, in school, you know in a particular class to pass the final exam, you are going to be given all the information you need, right? You, of course, you have to work with it, but the, you, you don't have to extend beyond that. So you learn linear thinking. And in the entrepreneurial world, linear thinking is deadly. It's literally a fatal flaw. You need this multidimensional, very flexible, very adaptable attitude, which actually allows you to, eh, we'll call it bend some rules, or at least be more creative, think out of the box mm-hmm. and those things. It's survival skill. So that that's always a starting point. So the entrepreneurs who come from Asia, <clears throat> whether they whether we talk about the market side or not, just their approach, their mindset to how they think about their product or their customers, sales process, etc., <clears throat> is very different from what an entrepreneurial <clears throat> mindset has to be. Now, in America, sometimes it's the other extreme. Sometimes you know, the, the ones, uh, the young people who are most entrepreneurial often are not very good in school because they just can't be bothered. Mm. And and then too wild, <laughs> crazy ideas. And they, they push in, in a lot of directions and they're hugely ambitious, uh, often unrealistic. And, but they bring a lot of energy. <laughs> you only bring a tremendous amount of energy Often they bring some insights into the market, which are actually very helpful. You can't get those, again, from the academic perspective because it's not in the books. You You have to go out and talk to real people. So this is why a lot of American companies, even when the technology is inferior, often have more success, at least in the beginning, in terms of selling their products to customers because they, they understand that. This is American culture is much more marketing ideas are much more sophisticated and it really takes a lot of not just courage courage is foundational for all entrepreneurship but it takes more the jewish word is husband it just have to be almost rude right you have to be outgoing and so almost pushy in order to to get people to listen to you and pay attention to you so it's a more aggressive culture yeah i remember um 
uh, reading uh, May Musk's book, like Elon Musk's mom's book about how she raised her children. And it's the complete opposite of how Asian parents raise their children, right? <laughs> Letting the kid have their own responsibility and not doing everything for them. Yeah. So what's the North American way of uh, raising kids that Asian parents are not aware of? <laughs> you gave the perfect example. When we talk about teaching fundamental concepts in entrepreneurship, we often talk about what at least the young people in America used to do, which is you have to go and mow your neighbor's lawn or do odd chores for people or, or even just working part-time. So when I was young, my mother was very insistent that I should not be distracted by any of that. There was, First of all, there was no need, but aside from the need, uh, she felt that there was a terrible thing for me to put me in that environment, go mm. work in a McDonald's. <laughs> or, you, know, you earn, earn a little bit of money, but, but what is it really worth to you? Now, the American answer to that is, what you learn is independence. What you learn is some work ethic to be responsible to your employers, some discipline, all of these things uh, are part of it. But it does also bring, obviously, a downside. And, and that's another fundamental concept in entrepreneurship that's very difficult, which is the idea of paradox. And I love this topic because I, I believe that all there, there's so many aspects of the personal characteristics of an entrepreneur that are paradoxical, as well as pretty much anything you do, there's like a, a fine line between like I mentioned, between being super aggressive and being high integrity or uh, connecting with someone. If you're super pushy, then you're probably not connecting. You're just forcing yourself on someone. <clears throat> but if you're too empathetic, then you'll never make a sale because <laughs> you know, mm. you'll you'll into the insecurities or the uncertainties of the customer. And then they'll just say, okay, you're a nice guy, but I'm not going to buy from you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's really interesting how all of these things, there's always the, at least this is part of what I do in my advising work is really to show people that there are these different sides, the different aspects of what happens to people's minds and their psyche, their psychology and their behavior. And <clears throat> navigating all this in the entrepreneurial world is really much more complicated. The Asian attitude is things should be more straightforward. <laughs> Right. <laughs> somehow um, and you don't have the same kind of paradox because you rationalize it all out but in america in the u.s especially we almost make it a badge of honor to, to have all of this complexity because we want drama we want attention we want people to notice us uh, elon musk is really the perfect example he's obviously a super smart guy in business maybe finance uh, clearly brilliant as an engineer what kind of a human being is he? How does he treat his employees? How does he think about what do his businesses really do in terms of the people side, uh, as well as how they make money? And then he does things like uh, Twitter slash X, and you wonder, what is he really trying to do with this? And sinking $42 billion, <laughs> this is crazy. I, I don't care how brilliant you think you are or how, how much money you have. Why are you doing this? Why are you using your valuable resources, your assets, your intelligence to do something like this. Of course, I don't know him. I don't know. And I'm not really challenging. I just say from the outside, I can't make any sense out of that.
Yeah, I, I remember that there was one interview, uh, a talk between Elon Musk and Jack Ma. And I think Jack Ma didn't uh-huh. get why Elon Musk was interested in going to space. <laughs> yeah. And then it was just not on the same page. But but in terms of like entrepreneurship in Asia, Asia is a big place, right? It's not like one place. But in general, um, there are also a lot of entrepreneurship, but maybe in a different way. I'm thinking maybe North America is more from zero to one, like from like a lot of the new inventions, right? ChatGPT now, right? But entrepreneurship in Asia, there are lots of uh, family businesses and doing real estate and all that still entrepreneurial, but maybe a different flavor of entrepreneurship. Any thoughts? Yeah. First of all, what you said is certainly true. Uh, but there are most of what is, I, I can't remember what the statistics are, but it, it's easily 75, 80% of the businesses in the United States are in fact, small businesses. So they're mm. family things, whether it's a restaurant or <clears throat> other kinds of mom and pop shops and so on. The technology sector and mm. technology entrepreneurship is a very specific subset. And of course, for those of us who play in this circle and for people like me, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley. This is our world, but this is a very tiny piece of the world. Mm. Um, There are a number of characteristics that make this area very special in in the world. And there are other areas in the U.S. and other countries as well, where there are these pockets of high-tech or deep-tech kinds of innovation. But China, let's just talk about China, because obviously that's... uh, (laughs) 800 pound gorilla or elephant, whatever. No, elephant would wave <laughs> another order. Uh, so 800 pound gorilla, one and a half billion people, probably more than that now. There's every stripe of every kind of everything that's available. What they have lacked until maybe the last 20, maybe 30 years is the intellectual capital. Enough really smart people that the top rank research scientists and academic professors. That was lacking 30 years ago. And they've really grown that resource very rapidly. So there certainly is a lot of very innovative tech coming out of China. There is a site difference in that the Chinese mindset, again, this is a fundamental cultural characteristic, tends to be more practical, meaning I want to solve a problem today. I'm not yeah. looking to innovate something that is a lot of fun intellectually, and I don't really know what, what it'll come out to be, such as like the Google, original Google algorithm. It doesn't look like a business, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like a research project, a PhD research project. But people are willing to pursue that here in the U.S., and then there are a whole bunch of other really clever people who think, oh, maybe this is a way we can make money from it, if not now, in, in the future. But the Chinese way is more grounded, more practical, more not really just short-term. It's not necessarily short-term. I think a lot of the bad examples of entrepreneurship in China come from really short-term thinking, such as copying people's copyrights and brands. Of course, it's illegal, but aside from the illegality of it, of course, that's the easiest thing. You, You take something that is very successful, that someone else has created and you literally copy it and you can sell it right away. So if it weren't for the legal aspect, and, and I'm not making a judgment on that, every country has a right to, to think about its own intellectual property. That's the rawest form of entrepreneurship, which says, I see an opportunity, uh, meaning I see a market demand 
I'm going to, I have an easy, quick way to bring in the resources I need, raw materials I need. I can produce it very quickly at low cost and I can sell it and I can make money. And the sooner the better. And, and that last statement is really what is holding, has been holding back investors, so-called venture capital investors or other investors in China and Asia. They're so accustomed to that, they, that when an entrepreneur presents a plan to an investor, that's the first thing they look for. Oh, six months, you haven't made any money? Ah, forget you. <laughs> so, not, so entrepreneurs, even the, the ones who are more ambitious technically or technologically, I have a huge disincentive to try to create products have long-term focus and may not have a result for a couple of years. That will not fly. Whereas here in Silicon Valley, if it's the right kind of idea, people say, oh, wow, that's ambitious. You've got, we call it in Skydeck, it's a moonshot. It's more the dream vision kind of mm. thing. It's a lot of uncertainty and risk as to whether that can actually be achieved. But the, the initial investment, the very first uh, couple of few million, could be simply a way of showing, acknowledging, and appreciating the vision and the insights, and of course, the character, fundamentally, the character of the founding team, that they have both the background, but most importantly, the drive, the, that, that ambition that will take them beyond what might rationally be expected. Mm. And that concept is not so common in, in China. We're more risk averse in, in Asia. So we say, okay, I, I want you to do as best you can, but I'm not going to expect you to to do more than you can do. Whereas yeah. in the US, the idea is I will reward you if you can stretch beyond what I think you can do, right? I will tell you, this is what you can, this is the way an empl a corporate employer would deal with an employee too, especially one who's very talented. They would set them very high goals and then they would say, I don't know if you can reach this, but if you can exceed this, <clears throat> all kinds of good things will follow. Right. And so that's, it is, it is much very much driven that way. And that's a capitalist model, right? <clears throat> Figure out a way to, to make it pay in money and you know, other ways. But, but it is the idea that <clears throat> if you can push and drive to achieve more, you'll, you'll be rewarded more. I wonder if it's a cultural where, because U.S. is formed really from Europeans coming all the way over across the ocean to form a new country, right? Whereas in Asia, it's not a very venture outward kind of kind of culture, right? Historically. And also there are wars, recent wars, where your parents would want you to save money and <laughs> save rice and all that and don't do risky stuff, right? Yeah, all of that certainly has some potential, has some relevance. I think a lot of people don't really think about that very much. Mm. Uh, historical part, 200 years ago, the world is so different. But there's an ongoing debate about what is the nature, let's call it, of the genetic predisposition to entrepreneurship. In other words, is entrepreneurship something that you're born with? You have to have certain genes, uh, or is it really a series of learned skills? And personally, I think it, it is, in fact, a combination. It's not a very clear combination. And every uh, individual entrepreneur probably has a different mix of whatever these genes and skills are. It's, it's not like there's a standard set. And here it is. We can inject this into everybody. I don't believe that entrepreneurship is appropriate for everyone. 
because some people, many people, the majority of people, really, they just aren't ready for it. And, and that's not a criticism. It's just saying that whatever personal characteristics, personality they have, and again, this question of drive and energy, just simply physical energy makes a huge mm-hmm. difference. Some people can get by very well. I used to have a boss. He would get like four hours of sleep every night. He was just dynamo. He could continue working and doing all these things. and Everyone else would be asleep. But that was his nature. And I'm sure there are a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the characteristics that you've observed uh, on, on successful entrepreneurs that you would put money into the startup? <laughs> Especially you train so many of them, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's, I, I get that question in, in a couple of other uh, phrasings. Entrepreneurs, the companies I'm, I'm advising are, of course, real startups registered in the U.S. Some of them are registered overseas. A majority of our startups now are actually from outside of the U.S., not mm. just the And some of them have had some financing already. But the ones that we accept into our accelerator program, we have a fund in which, which we use to invest in those companies as well. Very modest amount, $200,000 US. But the object of our so-called acceleration is to actually prepare them. We, we want to select those companies that within six to nine months can mm-hmm. present themselves to a real venture capital firms and obtain significant investment. You know, which means typically over a million dollars in in new equity funding. And so the the big question everybody is asking is, okay, what makes a startup investable? Okay, why would, what what do we have to present from the startup side? What do we have to present so that an investor will want to invest? And of course, that, that includes the founders, the founding team, the key people, as well as the company, the business itself. So that question is is so much more complicated than people realize until they've been through the process. Once they've been through the process, then they understand that, yeah, it's a very complex algorithm because there are so many variables. And the worst part of trying to understand this is the difficulty from the entrepreneurial perspective of seeing, acknowledging what the investor perspective is. So the investor perspective, so when I was wearing my venture capital hat, I would get hundreds of proposals a year, six, seven hundred. So let's just say it's two proposals a day. So at the end of the year, so 700 some proposals. If I get two proposals a day, and in those days, we actually had business plans. Remember those things? (laughs) 2025 page. (laughs) No longer a 15-slide deck. And the question is, how do I get through? Okay, so the first thing is my investment rate was like half a percent. So I would have to go through statistically now. This is, of course, an illusion, right? Statistically, it would be like 200 proposals before I find one I want to invest in. And that's not uncommon. That's a very typical investment rate. And then there's another interesting statistic, which is, what was it? What was I trying to say? <laughs> I've forgotten. <clears throat> Small statistics to pick out the yeah. right people. Yeah. The, the, what entrepreneurs don't understand mm. 
there, there's so many aspects of it they don't understand. So my first job is to use actually a process of elimination. Because mm. I'm going to look for, if I'm only going to invest in such a small number, oh, that's what I was going to say. The, the problem is for me as an individual venture capital partner in a firm, how many investments a year can I make? And mm. in my, that would be two, three, certainly not more than four in one year. Okay. And part of that was, yeah. And part of that was because when I invest, after I invest, I typically want to sit on the board of directors of the company I invest in. And then I have a very serious limit on the number of companies that I can actually look, look after. Mm. In board meetings, we have board meetings every month. So that's at least one day for the meeting day and usually at least another day or two days, whether it's travel time or prep time. Uh, and then in between, you, you need to be talking to your companies. So how many companies can you actually actively handle? Yeah, Probably not more than a dozen at any given time. And then you're maxed out. You don't even have time to look for new investments. Okay. And they're just thinking so you're sitting on this pile of money and you should be reviewing <laughs> all these plans. No, that's not right. That's not what I'm trying to do. And yeah, so I have to go through a process of elimination. And one of the keys to elimination is how do I spend the minimum amount of time to get through a large number of proposals so that I end up at any given time with a very small number of cases that I really want to spend time learning more about. And so there's a corollary here, which is that when a startup makes its first pitch to an investor, and that's very key, right? First impression is always key. Mm. When you make the first impression, if it's three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, the objective from the entrepreneur side should be, the only objective should be can I get the attention of this investor and sufficient interest that he or she will invite me to have a follow-up meeting? That's the whole point. Mm. The pitch is only to the next step. However, most entrepreneurs and the worst offenders in this direction are the really deep tech engineers because they <laughs> start. A, no, no, right. Yeah, they're too tech. They start off with a fundamental assumption, which is. How can you judge my project until you understand what I'm doing? So yeah. let me tell you, I want you to understand what I'm doing. I'll spend an hour telling you about my technique. <laughs> why it's going to beat everybody in the world. Right. Guess what? I'm gone. I've checked out. I'm doing other things. I'm not going to give you an hour of my time to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's a really fundamental flaw. So it's very interesting, right? That it, what makes it investable is actually a, a, a serial process of screens. Yeah. The first they need to know how to stand out, right? Yeah. Get your attention. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's always the, the very first filter. You've got to get my attention. The minute you lose my attention, it's over. You're gone. <clears throat> and then there are other uh, issues. And <clears throat> I always tell the companies the way the, this interaction goes, when entrepreneurs talk, they talk opportunity. So what investors hear, the same words, same story, what they hear is risk. Because they look at the world through risk-tinted glasses. <laughs> so everything oh. you tell me. Yeah, everything you tell me about how great this technology is. Oh, I've got uh, proprietary, I've got patents pending, I've got all this stuff. 
then automatically my mind as an investor goes to, okay, how valuable is that, that IP? Who else has IP that might conflict with that? Or who has prior knowledge? There, there are a whole set of issues that come up and I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm thinking about the risk. Mm-hmm. How big this market is and what do I think? Okay. My question is, okay, how are you going to get into this market? Who's going to know? Who's going to care? How are you going to get the message out? And so on and so forth. And so entrepreneurs who don't understand this uh, from the due diligence side, from the investor side, we call this healing the onion. So Mm. the best approach for an entrepreneur is to present the information as if it were the successive layers of an onion that you peel so that and as you peel off the first layer, then the next layer looks really attractive. And then you peel that off and then the next one's even more attractive and so on. Instead of trying to throw everything out and saying, look, Hi. I've got this this board of a hundred dishes and you could be delighted. I say, what am I going to do with this, right? There's no theme, there's nothing. What am I going to start with? And probably I'll just pass. <laughs> it's very interesting why... That psychology just so they doesn't have to work. be user centered. They have to be focused on what you want to hear at what time and when, right? That's exactly right. And, and that's the point we started out talking about product market fit. And I always think that term is backward because it's not about product market fit. That suggests that you develop a product and then you market it. No, you have to before you develop market product, product fit. <laughs> yeah. You you have to understand. The, the customer and the user to, to know really what is it that they want? What is their problem? What is the friction for them? What, what are they unhappy about? Happy as opposed to what can you do to make you happy about their problem? <laughs> you couldn't That's care less. Absolutely right. And there are so many tech stars that do that. They build the product, they engineer it, program it. And after months and months of burning cash, they haven't even found product market fit. Why no, is exact- that? How is it? How are they educated to operate like this? <laughs> oh, it's, it's good students. No, it's very simple. They're good students and they love what they do. Okay. They're very smart. It's not a, a question of their ability. It's a question of focus. Their mm-hmm. focus is on what they know, what they love, what they're interested in. So they just keep pushing that part of the technology. It's easy to push technology. The question is, how do you push technology to solve someone else's problem? Mm. See, they're solving their own problem. They're solving what problem they think they see. They assume that what they understand is the problem is in fact the real problem. But so often, vast majority of the projects that I counsel have this problem, <laughs> have this challenge, which is the, and it's, it's the first thing is very evident in their pitch deck, right? We always say you have to have a problem slide followed by the solution slide. And the problem slide says, oh, we're going to solve the world's problem, take care of all the environment, blah, blah, blah stuff, right? The UN Sustainable Development Goals. And then they tell me, okay, here's our solution. We do X, do that, that, that. And there's no connection. Of course, eventually <laughs> you can there is, but they don't actually solve a specific problem. So I tell them that on your problem statement slide, you should have however many points you want to have, one, two, three. But for each individual specific problem, you say, here is a specific solution for that specific problem. Mm. Then you have this thing, because first of all, when you say problem, 
That's your assumption that this is a problem of the market or of the customer and user. <clears throat> you better have validation of that. Show me that you really have identified the real problem. <clears throat> now, then tell me about the solution to that specific problem. But instead, they think, oh, and there's so many interesting examples uh, of this that, that I get from particularly undergraduate students. Because I used to teach uh, undergraduate classes as well as uh, MBA, Master of Science in Engineering, but mm. all uh, entrepreneurship in classes that I personally designed. <clears throat> but these classes are all practical. They do what entrepreneurs do. They form teams, build projects, slide deck, demo day, the whole thing. Invariably, they like to, particularly because they're students, they say, oh, what kinds of problems do we as students have? So some of the favorite ones, you see this every semester. <laughs> Same ideas, right? Housing, okay. Why, why the students have difficulty finding housing? And I'm sure that's universal, every country, every geography. Uh, and, and they think they, they can come up with a better uh, model for, for how to uh, basically match uh, landlords or, or available spaces uh, with students. And I tell them, this is like a dating game. You, you should understand why dating, how dating apps work. First of all, these are all apps, right? So that's easy. But they bring no particular insight other than their own personal sense of need that, yeah, it's difficult to, to find housing. But of course, they don't have any solutions. They think the solution is somehow some kind of better matching. Mm. And that's usually not the answer. They think of it as a resource, and that's because they're young and don't know enough and don't, <laughs> not aware enough of, of resources or clever enough, whatever it is. And they think that it. They think that the what is missing in this situation is that students are not well informed enough, because that's a reflection of their mental state. Their mental state is we are young, we don't know much about anything, and that's why we have to have an app that will tell us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they have other things like uh, <clears throat> restaurants. They're the same idea. How do we uh, provide more um, <clears throat> more business to to local residents by uh, somehow funneling, channeling uh, students uh, to these restaurants? And they try to. These are not high tech, of course. These are and certainly not deep tech. But they're they're trying to use uh, technology concepts and and of course the smartphone application structure to to create something that they think is entrepreneurial. But the problem is what really should stop them from even beginning is none of these problems are new. This is a problem that's been around forever. And what they really need to figure out is why don't they, why haven't previous attempts or current existing uh, attempts, why don't they work? Mm. As opposed to saying, oh, let's start over. We'll do it our way because we're, we're really smart. We'll figure out a better way. And that, again, is a fatal flaw. But it points to what I was saying earlier. It's like the ego that you think you can do it better and you're smarter. <clears throat> and maybe you think the tools have changed. But it is an, it, it's an inward look. It's looking at the resource that we have in uh, our minds and our startup team, as opposed to really understanding what the situation is. Why does this problem even exist? Uh, not why do you perceive it as a problem, but why does the problem yeah. exist? So I wonder, 
because a lot of startups usually it starts with a CEO, a business guy, and then they the second person they find is a CTO to build the product before they validate it. I'm wondering if the process should be shifted where you first find the product market fit or somebody who can help you validate the market before you even build it because the CTO doesn't know what to build until you specify exactly how the house should be built, right? So it's a process process issue, right? Sure, some of the smarter startups in Silicon Valley do work that way. But again, the majority here pretty much start with the technology. Mm. They're a group of technologists who would rather do this than go work for a company. (laughs) And there's a whole angle to that. But no, typically, especially tech startups, start with a couple of engineers getting together. And it's only after they begin to encounter the challenges of fundraising that they begin to realize what a CEO type of person, what the business needs are. Uh, and it, you know, it goes on and on. It, it's very challenging. But the ones that are more successful and the more mature, <clears throat> um, people with more mature mindset uh, in terms of entrepreneurial team, start out more the way you described. Someone who really understands a market need, a market opportunity, and then pulls the, together the other resources. Okay. And usually that marketing will also be CEO because there's nothing, you know, there's no particular background that makes someone more suitable as a CEO. Is it finance? No, not necessarily. Is it marketing? More likely than not. I think mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the technical founders who try to be CEO, it's very challenging because, again, their minds just don't work that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're more concerned about the thing, right, than the people using things. Yeah. Okay. Just now you mentioned most of your investments are like outside of America. And then you also have a lot of students that are coming from outside of America. Can you talk a little bit about that and how they're different? The companies in our accelerator program are typically not students anymore. They're beyond that. They're older. I was referring more to the students in my classes. Uh, and we do have some younger entrepreneurs in our incubator okay. part of our operations. And of course, we try to encourage all entrepreneurs because again, it, like you said, it's a process. Everybody has something to learn. But the fund, <clears throat> which is investing in the accelerator group of companies, as I said, it's a narrow window of the types of companies. We must have a certain level of maturity in order to already have some investment and be ready for serious investment. We can't mm-hmm. say, oh, you don't have a CEO, you don't have anything, and oh, how are you going to get investment in six months? And the answer is there's too much groundwork to, to cover before that. So the situation like that, we probably would not even accept into the accelerator. Our accelerator acceptance rate is also less than 1%. Mm-hmm. We had 2,100 um, uh, applications, and we're only funding 18 companies in the current batch. So it's a good Yeah, very very, uh, competitive, right? So what are some of the success cases that you've seen, like product market fit and um, also going to foreign markets, wherever, whether it's coming from Asia or North America or Europe coming to America or other situations? Yeah. That's a little harder for me to uh, 
to comment on because I, I don't tend to remember. I, I deal with so many companies <laughs> and, and I'm in any number of them uh, in, in great depth. Um, you know, the fact that uh, everyone makes so much noise about so-called unicorns means that funding at valuations, usually private financing valuations over $1 billion, that doesn't mean much. There have been a slew of very high-profile companies that have, have gone bankrupt. We work recently, right? Yeah, WeWork, WeWork is, to me, so transparent because I remember right from the beginning, everyone was making such a lot of noise over it. And I kept talking to my friends. I was saying, what, what's new here? This is a real estate play. Yeah. And, and of course, ultimately, that, that was their downfall. They, they didn't understand that they were really in the real estate business. Mm. So they overestimated. They had a typical challenge with financing, which is trying to, to balance the needs of long-term capital for serious, for their kind of investment, and short-term capital, which you need for operating expenses. Mm. And because of that, it, it's not so much a product market fit, I think there was, due to a number of economic factors, uh, it was a, a, a clever idea for the particular time, uh, but it didn't have uh, enough longevity. Uh, and of course, it had zero uh, competitive uh, advantage, meaning other people could offer the same kind of thing. So why would <clears throat> why would a company want to work just with WeWork as opposed to a competitor. There's just no particular advantage. I don't understand why so much money from very smart investors went into companies like that. And there are other examples. That wasn't fraudulent, not like Theranos, which was clearly fraudulent. But people right. just misguided. And, and there's a lot of that. And what happens when people get misguided is they mistake the vision and the energy and usually a charismatic founder <laughs> instead yeah. of a Focusing on the fundamentals. Yeah. So to so me, you... investing with early stage companies is the, the fundamentals have to be really sound. And as you keep emphasizing, the idea of product market fit is literally the, the very, very first step, the, the, mm -hmm. the most foundational concept right. that you could imagine. If you don't get that right. What else are you going to try to do? Oh. Just spend nine months just figuring that out. As opposed to, oh, I want to build a prototype so I can show it to people, which is wow. very often what happens. And with software or with an app, that's easy. Uh, okay, so here, mm. here's another okay. example of, of a very specific situation. I think this was created by I think a woman in France. And she was she wanted to create an app specifically directed at female travelers. Mm. And what offer would be to connect female travelers with local guides in different cities. So let's say you, Elaine, wanted to go to Copenhagen uh, in Denmark. <clears throat> you could go through uh, her app <clears throat> and uh, possibly be matched up with uh, a number of candidate uh, guides. And you as a woman might feel more secure because maybe the guide is also female, obviously somehow vetted to be uh, safe, viable uh, type of person, uh, as opposed to uh, being a woman just 
randomly landing in a foreign country, no knowledge of, mm. of the language and uh, either trying to do it on your own or, or participating in a commercial commercial tour. Okay. Now, it's not a terrible idea, but how big is that market? How do you develop that market? How do you, how do you make that into a, a big business? Which, of course, is also one of the fundamental assumptions of a venture capitalist. They're not going to invest in anything they don't see can scale into millions of users, at least large. And But she was very convicted. She had a very strong idea, very clear idea of what she was trying to do. And she, of course, got some initial traction, meaning, I don't know, a dozen, couple dozen people trying it out. and But it's just, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm. Of course, we didn't. So remember before COVID, it was all like about market size and the how fast to grow and add revenue instead of actually making money from customers. Do you think COVID has changed that now? Well, Um, COVID, what happened with COVID is pretty complicated because on the one hand, one of the results, aside from people not traveling or people being physically out <clears throat> shopping or interacting and so on, the economy is just really plummeted. Everything just slowed down very dramatically. The way investors look for what they call traction, because it's one of the things that answers this question, what makes a startup investable? And standard answer is traction. And the, what that usually means is a shorthand for show me revenue. Show me you can have real customers paying you. So there's revenue. That's traction. Now, that's fine. But if you happen to be, for example, a biotech company or a medical device company, first several years, there's no possibility of revenue. It just doesn't exist. Right. So what constitutes traction? And I describe it as really any and all forms of third-party validation, right? Mm -hmm. Testimonials from experts, testimonials from beta users, testimonials from channel partners, or whoever, however you can get it. And of course, if you win prizes for your technology or you patents on your technology, all of these are forms of third-party validation. You need to know how to present those as ways to inform investors that it's not just we say how great we are, other people in the, this ecosystem, in our ecosystem, our field, other people acknowledge who we are. Okay. And, uh, that's really a very important concept. Uh, <clears throat> revenue is, is one thing. Uh, but for some projects, it's simply not possible. And you cannot just say, it's not possible. I'm not going to, I'm just going to, I, I don't know how people deal with that because as an entrepreneur, you can't admit any particular roadblock is permanent, right? If it is, then you, you know, give up entirely. When there's a roadblock, you have to figure out a way around it. So if the roadblock is you're too young and it's not possible for you to have revenue, what else can you show to an investor that would encourage their interest or confirm their confidence in what you're doing. So it's proving that oh, there's it's, it's, support, right? It's all about proving. And so I think what happened with the pandemic was it suddenly became much harder to get proof. 
because people weren't interacting. People weren't in the market. People, business slowed down. Everything slowed down. Of course, it was more difficult. Wow. Now, pandemic, now, <clears throat> there's still a consensus that uh, investment rate has not picked up uh, so much, maybe beginning to a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> part of that is, is that investors... Um, <clears throat> are really a reactive lot. They're not proactive. So they react to economic changes. They react to what's going on in the startup world. Uh, ironically, uh, although, uh, okay, so there are typically two segments of the venture capital investment, call it portfolio, that don't slow down so much, even when times are tough. One is quite late stage where they're raising large amounts of money let's call it 25, 50 million and up, and really early stage where it's a million, two million. Where companies have the most challenging time is when they're past, they're certainly past the MVP, the minimal viable product. They're, they've done their beta testing. They're beginning to get some customers, but they're not really quite ready to scale. So there's a uncertainty between beginning to sell and being to scale up. So what happens uh, in between? And what happens, of course, is market development. It's about partners. It's about <clears throat> any kind of license, whatever you, you need to do to get through there. But that stage of growth is particularly hard to fund because that's when there's so many questions. It's no longer the fundamental technical questions. There are questions about implementation, or how it will work in, in the environment of the user, will there be conflicts and so on, and of course, competition with, the, with other uh, commercial offerings and so on, more regulatory issues. There, there's so many unknowns that you really have to deal with and resolve that don't necessarily result in revenue right away. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes very challenging to to get an investor to say, okay, we'll fund you to do those. Because that's a different side of the type of strengths, the mm. types of skills the team has to have. The early startup is really, again, foundational stuff. And if it's tech, then you want some ex exceptional techie people. <clears throat> After you scale, then when you're ready to scale, there are lots of people who are experienced in the industry who can do that. But this, yeah. call it a terrible, it's a teenage, tween age, uh, it's difficult. Yeah. So it's the first, the first 10 yards of a marathon versus the long game, right? Like <laughs> how, how often is it the same people, right? The, the people who are great at starting things versus the people who are good at scaling things. Is it the same or not? Okay. So that's a really important point as a, company grows from not only zero to one, one to 10 to 100 and so on. Actually, what is required of the human resources is different. Mm. It's very different. Team members who are really good at the, the first stage, it's just, again, one one set. And it's no, not necessarily the, the same set for every kind of project, but it's a certain type of mentality. And even a CEO who is really super in the first two or three years, may or may not be good in that middle uh, section uh, and probably is not good and doesn't enjoy uh, managing a company with two, three, four hundred employees. A guy who loves a 10-person team that's 
all gung-ho and everybody is in one room is very different than having <clears throat> this big corporate structure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's also a challenge because sometimes the founders aren't willing to see that, aren't willing to, to evolve. And that they have to learn. So I think this is the this is a good place to wind up in the sense that this is another foundational issue of entrepreneurship, that entrepreneurs must be totally passionate learners in a very broad sense and never content to rest on your laurels. And using the analogy I talked about with uh, academia, mm -hmm. if you looked at the top 10 students uh, in any class in university, you think these people are, are great learners. And they are. They're very efficient learners in the academic context. But are they really passionate learners in the broader sense? And often they're not, <laughs> because for whatever reason. Uh, again, it's not a criticism. But entrepreneurs have to be willing to continuously reinvent themselves all the time right. to learn new things. Whatever, whichever side you come from, you, you want to learn about other things. It's not trying to be, become somehow omnipotent and good at everything. You will never be, most of us, will never be good at everything. But if you are, we talked about this very specifically, if you are a technical person, an engineer, you absolutely must understand what marketing is all about. You may not want to do it, you may not right. be actually well suited, it, but you better understand it. And you better understand the finance as well. Okay, again, not to be a finance person or an accountant. It's not that level of, of, of skill, but just understanding, absolutely. Uh, and so a CEO is really challenged the most because they have to really understand everything that's yeah. going on. Yeah. And manage to keep everything going. So yeah. it's really about keeping the people, the, the corporate culture, that energy moving along in a, in a positive way. That is really, that is a very specific kind of skill that's never taught anywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly can be trained, but it, it, people have to have that as a drive and have some of the innate skills, again, people skills to do that. Yeah, keep everybody on the same ship and going the same direction, right? Okay, so one last thing is, so to summarize what's one takeaway you like the audience to, to know about entrepreneurship and product market fit? I think the, the statement about learning is most important. Maybe, again, a, a prequel, a pre precondition to even that is having the courage, the okay. courage to dedicate your life to, to something. And that doesn't mean forever. It just means that at any given time, you have a very clear sense of purpose, a sense of commitment for some indefinite period of time. You can't say, I'm going to be committed to this for six months and then I'm out of here. That's not what entrepreneurs do. Yeah. At some point, you may have to pivot, change direction, or you may have to give up. That's another issue. But you have to have that courage and the courage of your convictions that what you are doing is meaningful, it's important, not just to yourself, but again, to like, to the ecosystem, that you are really making a significant contribution. And it's not just about making money. Mm. It's okay to just make money and you can be successful as an entrepreneur doing that. But I think it won't be nearly as rewarding in yeah. a personal sense. I don't think you will bring in, especially for a more sophisticated technology company, you will not bring in the kind of people that mm -hmm. will help you build that kind of 
if, if everyone you buy is basically a hired gun, then the big risk you run is someone else is going to pay them more money and they're gone. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the problem with money. Mm-hmm. Well, they have to be motivated also by a sense of shared purpose. And mm-hmm. that the, the sharing is what helps sustain everybody's courage. But that courage has to be foundational. It comes from the founder, it comes from the CEO, but everyone has to contribute to that because it's like the old story. One bad apple would <laughs> spoil the whole barrel. And uh, you, you can't afford, in a startup, you can't afford to have those bad apples. You have to really continuously try to bring in only the, the best possible people that you can mm. who will share that commitment and, and do that with you. Yeah, I've noticed that in the U.S., a lot of the great startups are, they're great at evangelizing. <laughs> it's changed the world, right? It's never just about money. Otherwise, you you, you go trade stocks in the market. <laughs> yeah. The entrepreneurial life is truly challenging. It's worth it, but it's challenging, which means it's, it's hard and it's hard emotionally uh, as well as physically. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. It, it, don't don't be an entrepreneur. Just go sell stuff uh, or buy and sell. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you so much, Pochi, for your time. Um, how can people reach to you? What's the best way to find you? <laughs> Look for me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn? And, okay. uh, and they can connect with me that way. Okay. All right. Thanks for your time, Pochi. Okay. I think a lot of the bad examples of entrepreneurship in China come from really short-term thinking, such as copying people's copyrights and brands. Of course, it's illegal, but aside from the illegality of it, of course, that's the easiest thing. You you take something that is very successful that someone else has created, and you literally copy it, and you can sell it right away. So if it weren't for the legal aspect, and, and I'm not making a judgment on that. Every country has a right to, to think about its own intellectual property. That's the rawest form of entrepreneurship, which says, I see an opportunity, uh, meaning I see a market demand. I'm going to I have an easy, quick way to bring in the resources I need, raw materials I need. I can produce it very quickly at low cost, and I can sell it, and I can make money. And the sooner, the better. And, and that last statement is really what is holding, has been holding back investors, so-called venture capital investors or other investors in China and Asia. They're so accustomed to that, they, that when an entrepreneur presents a plan to an investor, that's the first thing they look for. Oh, six months, you haven't made any money? Ah, forget you. <laughs> not, so entrepreneurs, even the, the ones who are more ambitious technically or technologically, I have a huge disincentive to try to create products have long-term focus and may not have a result for a couple of years. That will not fly. 